In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Collect for the Mass of the Second Sunday of Lent. O God, who seest how we are destitute of all strength, keep us inwardly and outwardly, that in body we may be defended from all adversities, and in mind cleansed of evil thoughts. I begin by setting this collect because as we are doing throughout the week, we have the theme this year for our Lenten pilgrimage together of the prayers each day of the Mass, always looking at the collect, the secret, the post-communion, or the prayer over the people at the end. It may seem at first glance that today's collect has little to do with the theme of the rest of the Mass, especially that most glorious and sublime gospel which we have today, which has made this Sunday so famous, as it was called in past ages, simply Transfiguration Sunday. So important is this gospel in the mind of Holy Mother Church that we have it twice. It is simply a repetition of the gospel we had on the very ancient Mass yesterday, November Saturday, the gospel heard by those who had just been ordained to the Holy Priesthood, according to the ritual that has existed in the Church since the earliest centuries. I would say, however, that the collect of today's Mass truly has everything to do with what the Church wishes to teach us today by placing this mystery of the transfiguration of our Lord at this point during our Lenten journey. We might well ask, why is the transfiguration so important? Certainly we can understand why among all our fathers in the faith we find countless sermons about the nativity of our Lord, the coming of our Savior into the world. Still more about his passion and death and his resurrection, by which he purchased for us our redemption. Yes, all this is very clear to us. When it comes to the transfiguration, however, we might suppose at first, is this not just one more event in the course of our Lord's public ministry? What precisely does it have to do with our sanctification and our salvation? Is that not already covered enough by our consideration of our Lord's nativity and his passion and resurrection? From the very beginning, the Church has thought otherwise, for we will never have done with all the sermons that have been written by the Fathers on this mystery of the Transfiguration. Yes, the Church Fathers, both in East and West, simply marveled at this mystery and wished to plummet to its very depths. I cannot possibly share with you today all of their beautiful thoughts. But it is important to share at least a few so that we may profit by what the Church wishes to convey to us today in order especially to give us courage and strength on our journey and allow the grace of Christ to work within us to cleanse us as we pray in today's Mass from all adversities and from all evil thoughts. I would propose then in order to sum up the thoughts of those who have gone before us, two reasons why this mystery of the transfiguration is so important for our consideration. 
The first is the reason why it was so important to those who witnessed it. Those blessed three, Peter, James, and John. There the fathers were very clear. The reason why they saw this mystery is simple. The servant is not greater than his master. Our Lord came in his teaching to provide a fulfillment and a summary of the Law and the Prophets. Yet when we look in the Old Testament, we find that the Law and the Prophets, that is, Moses and Elias, received single graces from Almighty God. Moses himself, in fact, was transfigured on a mountain. He was allowed to see in a cloud, or not look upon his face, nevertheless to see the Lord passing by. He could not look upon his glory lest he would die. However, even this very veiled epiphany of the Lord to Moses was such that Moses himself shone like the sun, as we are told. So bright was his face that they could not even look on him as he descended from the mount. And as for Elias, he was taken up in a chariot at the close of his time here on earth. And so looking on these two servants of God, the law and the prophets, it was necessary for the blessed Trinity to make clear that this was not just one more servant of God. This was truly the master. Peter, seeing our Lord transfigured and seeing him speaking with Moses and Elias, proposes to make three tabernacles. One for our Lord, one for Moses, and one for Elias. But he is immediately interrupted in his proposal by the voice of God himself. Three times in the life of our Lord on earth do we hear of the appearance of all three persons of the Blessed Trinity. First on the Annunciation, at the moment of our Savior's conception in Mary's womb and his anointing as high priest. The angel Gabriel says to Mary, The Spirit of the Lord shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Therefore the Holy One that is born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And again, at our Lord's epiphany, that is, his baptism, and the start of his public ministry, we read when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending and alighting upon him in the form of a dove and the voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now it is the voice of a father, the voice of the father through a cloud that we hear. And it comes as a sort of correction to Peter who wishes to build these three tabernacles. Church Father St. Jerome perhaps explains this best, saying, You err, Peter, and as St. Luke adds, you, not know, you know not what you say. Do not seek three tabernacles. 
since one is the dwelling place of the gospel, in which are summed up both the law and the prophets. But if you do seek for three tabernacles, do not place the servants on the same level with their master. But make three tabernacles, rather make but one, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So as one is their divinity, so let one be their tabernacle, and let that tabernacle be thy own heart. If we wish, though, the most profound explanation for the meaning of this epiphany, this theophany of our Lord on Mount Tabor, we can look even farther back to the writings of those who were the eyewitnesses. As to St. James, the brother of St. John, that is St. James the Greater, we have no record of any account, for it is not he who wrote the epistle of St. James, that is St. James the Less. But as for Peter and John, we have the most beautiful testimony. The first is, those, is from those words which we hear at the end of every Mass in the last Gospel. As St. John tells us, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or as we read in the Greek, and made his tabernacle among us. And we gazed upon his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. St. Peter goes even further in explaining the grace of the transfiguration and how it makes clear to us the nature of our calling. In his second epistle, we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his most great and precious promises, that through these you may fly from the corruption of that concupiscence which is in the world and become partakers of the divine nature. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, this voice coming down to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And this voice we heard from heaven when we were with him on the holy mount. How can we arrive at this most sublime promise the promise that through Christ we may become partakers of the divine nature. The gospel leaves no room for doubt. All three of the synoptic gospels are very clear in the order of events. Just before the passage that we have in our Missal today, whether it be in St. Matthew or in St. Mark or St. Luke, we find three things. First of all, there is Peter's confession of faith and then his establishment as the rock of the church and the vicar of Christ. Then our Lord predicts his passion to his disciples and then rebukes Peter who tries to impede him from going to Jerusalem. Finally, our Lord declares, if any man would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels and the glory of his Father. And then he will repay every man for what he has done. The teaching of our Lord and the Apostles is clear. To reach Mount Tabor, to partake of the divine nature through this grace of the transfiguration, we must first join our Savior on two other mounts, Mount Olivet and Mount Calvary. The only way to Mount Tabor is the royal way of the cross. And perhaps of all writers in the history of the Church, no one has made this more clear than one of a later age, that is, in the glorious Middle Ages, that beautiful author of The Imitation of Christ, this book which we can never have done with in our meditation, especially during Lent. As he tells us, Jesus always has many who love his heavenly kingdom, but few who bear his cross. He has many who desire consolation, but few who care for trial. He finds many to share his table, but few to take part in his fasting. All desire to be happy with him. Few wish to suffer anything for him. Many follow him to the breaking of bread, but few to the drinking of the chalice of his passion. Many revere his miracles. Few approach the shame of his cross. Many love him as long as they encounter no hardship. Many praise and bless him as long as they receive some comfort from him. But if Jesus hides himself and leaves them for a while, they fall either into complaints or into deep dejection. To many, this saying is hard. Deny thyself, take up thy cross, and follow me. But it will be much harder to hear that final word, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Those who hear the word of the cross and willingly follow it need not fear that they will hear of eternal damnation on the day of judgment. The sign of the cross will be in the heavens when the Lord comes to judge. Then all the servants of the cross, who during life made themselves one with the crucified, will draw near with great trust to Christ the judge. Why then do you fear to take up the cross when through it you can win a kingdom? And the cross is salvation, the cross is life, and the cross is protection from enemies, and the cross infusion of heavenly sweetness, and the cross strength of mind, joy of spirit, highest virtue, perfect holiness. There is no salvation of soul nor hope in everlasting life but in the cross. Take up your cross, therefore, and follow Jesus. Yes, then, during this Lent, let us all take up our cross. Let us all willingly accompany our Lord and not sleep, but wake with him in the Garden of Olives and follow him all the way to Calvary, that we may taste in this life, through grace, that partaking of the divine nature which we found on Mount Tabor, and thus inherit one day eternal life forever and ever. 
Amen.